going to start our series, and you can put that back up, it's fine. Uh, we're going to start our series uh, through the life of David this morning. Out of 1 Samuel 16 is where we're going to kick this off. We're, we'll look at some of this text together this morning, and, uh, but I need to give us some backstory as well to bring us up to where we're at in this account and to bring us current. I've looked forward to this series for a while, and uh, I, I love... I love studying Bible characters and learning from their lives and seeing how they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, he said, when you're preparing a sermon, select your text and head to the cross. And uh, I like that uh, because that's what we have to do with every Old Testament account is we figure out how that ties in to what the whole story of the gospel or the scripture is about, and that is the glory of God through the redemption of man, and we see that unfolding for us. And so uh, we take our text this morning from 1 Samuel 16, and I'd like to read the first 13 verses of this chapter as an introduction, and we're going to read together David's anointing. And uh, David is referred to um, in the book of Ruth in a genealogy, uh, and so we find David's genealogy a little earlier in the Bible, in the book of Ruth, through that, uh, that account there. Uh, then he's mentioned as being someone that God has in mind twice previously in this, but not by name. And so in chapter 13 and chapter 15, there's a reference to there's another king coming. Uh, but here we find David kind of coming out of the background and being brought to the foreground. And this is going to be a long process as God brings him to his position of king. And it is not going to be a quick process and it's going to be through much pain. And so if you found your place there, let's begin reading in verse number one and we'll read down through verse number 13 together. The Lord said to Samuel, how long would you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elder of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. And consecrate Jesse and his sons and invite them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse came, uh, then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of the Word of God this morning. Father, we ask you that you would take uh, our time together and open our eyes to what uh, you're trying to teach us in this text. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would give us clarity of thought. Father, forgive us where we failed you. Use us this morning for your glory, and we'll praise you for your goodness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So to give you um, a run up to where we are in this account, we start back many, many years earlier before this account with a man named Abraham, and most all of you will be familiar with the name Abraham. Abraham, God called him out of the era of the Chaldees, and he set him up as being the uh, the patriarch of the nation of Israel. He said, Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And of course, at that time, he had no children. And we know the account went on that at the age of 100 years of age, Abraham has a child, and uh, that child's name is Isaac. Isaac then also has two sons, and those sons are uh, Jacob and Esau. Jacob raises up 12 sons, and those 12 sons, Jacob's name is eventually changed to Israel by God. And those 12 sons become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the story goes on to where they migrate into Egypt to escape a famine under the leadership of Joseph. Joseph there spares their life by God's providence down in Egypt. And now they're there in Egypt for 400 years. And finally, at the end of that time, they find themselves under the oppression of the nation of Egypt. And there was a great uh, division there where the nation of Israel were literally slaves working for the Egyptians. And, and they cried out to God, and God raised up a man named Moses. And we know Moses to be that great deliverer. And God uses Moses to bring them out of Egypt. And that's through the Red Sea. And you may have seen or heard of that account where Moses stretches his rod out over the Red Sea and the waters part and they cross on dry land and they're in the wilderness. Moses is with them in the wilderness for 40 years and then Joshua carries them into the promised land, which is where we find them now in this area. They are in this promised land. The problem is, is that the nation of Israel, every time they had an opportunity to obey God, they would obey him for a little while and then rebel, and then obey him for a little while and then rebel, and then they would go back and forth in this the whole time they were in the promised land, going back and forth from obedience to repentance to obedience to repentance, and so God would send nations to judge them, and we see a time of, uh, of history for the nation of Israel called the time of the judges. Now, the idea was that God was their king, and they had one king. They didn't need an earthly king, but God was their king. And the judges would come in and rule over the nation of Israel in a sense of pointing them back to their king and reminding them of where they left. And they would be, uh, in many occasions, uh, military leaders as well to deliver them from the oppression of the people around them. And so we see a list of these judges. And this is where people like Samson in the Bible would have been. Samson would have been the man with the hair. And a strong guy, right? And uh, we see men like Gideon. He would have been the guy hiding in the wine press and afraid. And, and he defeats the Midianites with nothing more than some lamps and some horns. And, and God used them in an incredible way to defeat the Midianites. And go, God gives great deliverance to these men. So there's many of these people. Uh, Deborah and Barak are mentioned in this time as deliverers. And, and it's really, the book of Judges is probably one of the most gruesome books 
of the whole Old Testament. It's a very violent book. And we get through that period of time and we come to the book of Samuel. Samuel is thought to be one of the last judges of Israel. Um, and uh, Samuel was raised by Eli the priest, and Eli was a failure as a priest and died uh, because of his sins, and his sons died because of his sins, and Samuel is uh, kind of ushered into that office as leading and judging the nation of Israel, and as Samuel is leading uh, in this office, uh, the nation of Israel comes to Samuel in his old age and says, you know what, we're done with this judges thing, give us a king, we want a king. And so God says, all right, if that's what you want, I'll give you a king. How many of you have ever given your children something that they demanded they have, but you knew wasn't going to be good for them, but you let them have it to show them that it wasn't good for them? Um, and God turns them over to what they want. He said, I gave you the desire of your heart, but sent leanness to your soul, the psalmist says. And so he gives them the king, and Saul is the king that they, they choose. And Saul was this guy. I mean, he was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He was the best looker. He would have been the most athletic guy in the whole nation. And Saul comes to the throne. And the Bible tells us that Saul did well for a time, but then he became full of himself. His arrogance took over him. His fear of losing the kingdom and holding on to what he'd been given. And Saul is still king when we come to our text right now. But the thing that we see is that God has rejected Saul from being king. On two occasions, Saul has been rejected and God tells Saul, you're no longer going to be king. I'm raising up another king. And so this is where we pick up our account. And what I want to do is break our text up into four sections this morning. And as we come to David, and we find out just a little bit about him, we're going to see four things. The rejected king, the mourning prophet, a secret mission, and then the Lord's anointed. And we'll break it up in that way this morning. And so as we look into this this morning, first off, let's look at this rejected king just for a moment. Saul, the rejected king, in chapter number 13 and 14, or 13, verse number 14, the Bible tells us of Saul. He says, Saul, I'm going to find another. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord hath commanded him to be prince over the people because you have not kept the Lord's command, what the Lord commanded you. And he said, I'm done, Saul. I found someone else to serve. And in chapter number 15, in verse number 28, we find another account. And Samuel said unto him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Those are pretty harsh rebukes. And he's very clearly, the kingdom has been pulled away from Saul. And the, the reason for his rejection is his lack of obedience to God's command, his hubris in stepping into offices he had no business being in. He's a man uh, whose integrity was in question. He was more worried about how people viewed him than he was interested in what God knew to be true of him. He was more interested in preserving face. You know the account Saul had sinned against God and he said, I've obeyed God. And he said, well, what, why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep? You were told to execute them. And he said, no, I obeyed God. The people spared them. And Samuel said, look, you haven't obeyed God. And they argue back and forth and finally he confesses and he says, okay, I've sinned against God. And here's Saul, if I can sum it up, Saul says, okay, I've sinned against God, but don't take the kingdom from me. 
But now let's fast forward to David's life and let's get into 2 Samuel in our mind's eye for a minute. David is going to sin as well. David is going to sin against a holy God and he sins atrociously against God. And when he sins against God, God calls him on it through the prophet Nathan and he says, David, you've sinned. And what does David say? He doesn't say, don't take your kingdom from me. He says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And the contrast is so clear here. Saul is saying, hey, let me hold on to the kingdom. I don't care anything about what's going on in here. And David's saying, hey, whatever happens with the kingdom is up to you. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. And this is the contrast of what God was doing in the life of these two men. Saul never once acknowledges God's will about David being king. He tacitly mentions, okay, David, you're better than me, and I get it. But he never wraps his arms around the idea of David being king. I mean, how much different this story could have been had Saul said, you know what? God has rejected me from being king. God, you show me who the next man is. I'll show him the ropes, teach him everything I've learned and where I've failed, and help your plan go forward. But that's not Saul's attitude. Saul's attitude is if I find him, I'll hunt him down and kill him. Saul is rejected from being king. Not only do we see a rejected king, but we see a mourning prophet. Samuel is mourning over this. Now remember again that Samuel was this judge of Israel, and they come and say to him, hey, we want to be, we want a king. And, and there's a very real sense in which Samuel's like, well, what, what have I done wrong to you that you're tired of me leading and now you want a king? And he was wounded by that. And God says, hey, look, Samuel, they haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. I'm the one they've rejected. Samuel's sons had not followed in Samuel's steps. They had gone away from the things of God. And now Saul is almost like a second chance for Samuel, maybe. Saul, step up and, and take the reins and lead the nation and honor God. And now Saul has failed again. And Samuel is mourning for Saul. Part of this grief could be his disappointment of his own sons. And now Saul, too, was rejected from being king. The Lord reaches down to Samuel in word here. And he says in verse number one, how long will you grieve over Saul? How long? You know, I wonder... This morning, when it comes to grieving over those who have sinned, how long do we grieve over those that sinned? Now, obviously, there's a time to stop grieving, and our text tells us that. There's a time to set the grieving aside and get to work. But I wonder how many times we are probably too quick to end our grief over sin, and we pique our curiosity over the details of sin. And our hearts are too intrigued by this, but Samuel is burdened for Saul. He doesn't sit down and say, you know what? I'm going to write a blog about all this guy that did wrong. I want to let everybody know what, what Saul did. No, he is on his face. He's grieved. He is heavy hearted over what Saul has done. Make no mistake, sin should be addressed. But when we do it, we should always come, as Paul admonishes in Galatians 6, that we come with spiritual mindedness, with meek hearts, considering ourselves, lest we also be tempted. That when we walk into someone else's sin, that we're not walking in with like, well, I would never behave that way. The fact is, there is nothing that is beneath any of us. There's nothing that is uh, beyond us. Every person here could fail in any sin, and we don't walk into a sin that someone commits like Saul and say, well, I would never. <coughs> it's just not true. 
And the heaviness of Saul's sin weighs on Samuel's heart. Now, we can mourn too long. God's plan does not hinge on any man. The work of God continues no matter who fails us. And let me, let me just say again, men will fail us. Men will disappoint us. Men will grieve our heart, and we will grieve. And there are men in my life that I have loved and walked with in sweet fellowship at times, and now they have walked away from the things of God. They have done things grievous to the heart of God. And when I think of their names, my heart is heavy by what has gone on, and I wish there was a way to restore them back to fellowship and restore them into their walk with God. Uh, But it's not up to me to make it happen. We ought to reach out, we ought to encourage, we ought to be gracious and meek and patient, but we can't make anybody do anything. But let me make something very clear, regardless of who walks away, the cause of Christ still marches forward. And we keep going forward for the glory of God, because God has a purpose in all of this, and God is using these moments, even these moments of failure. And what does he say to this morning prophet? Look at verse number one again. He said, I've rejected him from being king over Israel. He said, how long are you going to do this? You're going to grieve over him some more? I've rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. He said, put put oil in that horn and go. I've got a place for you to go. I've got a work for you to do. The work's not done, Samuel. I'm still accomplishing something. Now, this is an interesting image for us. To see this horn, and a horn would have been just what you picture, a horn that was used as a vessel. It would have been capped off, and there would have been some way to seal it, and then the oil would be poured out and measured. And uh, this horn was used for anointing and for the purpose of uh, setting something apart. It's not a foreign thing in the the Old Testament. Under the Mosaic law, people and things both were set apart for sacred service by an anointing oil and anointing them with oil. In Exodus chapter 30 and Exodus 29, both accounts, we find God anointing the priest. We see priests being anointed. We see prophets being anointed. Uh, we see now kings being anointed. As Saul was anointed king and David now was anointed king in just this chapter here. The first time we see any reference to oil being poured out to set something apart was when Jacob himself, who became Israel, he goes to this place and he meets with God. And you may remember the account in the Old Testament where he saw a ladder ascending into heaven and angels ascending and descending. And he knew that he had met with God and he said, this place must be the house of God. And so he poured out oil on a stone that next morning and consecrated that place and said, this place will be called Bethel. And he sets the place apart. And this is what it did. It was a signifying that this person or this place or this piece of furniture has been set apart for God's use. It is sanctified. It is set apart. So he takes this horn of oil and he goes. Now it's interesting to me that the great Samuel, who has confronted Saul in the previous chapter, and done so with great boldness, by the way, If you read chapter 15, maybe for your homework sometime, and Samuel is, he's a man on fire in that chapter. He comes out and he's telling him, hey, you've done what God told you not to do. You haven't obeyed what God said. And he said, well, I kept Agag because he was the king. And he said, where is he at? And he says, he's right here. And the Bible tells us that he took a sword and hacked him up right there in in, in the front of everybody. 
This is Samuel's action just one chapter prior. And now he's saying, oh no, <coughs> I can't go anoint anybody king because if Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. Now, hold on a second here. Are you really afraid of Saul? Well, I don't know if he really was afraid of Saul, if he had a heart change. I think probably Saul was probably more afraid of Samuel than Samuel was afraid of Saul. At least that's the way it seems to fit in here. But he makes this uh, disagreement with God. How many have ever, ever given God an excuse that you knew wasn't real? Because you didn't want to do it? And so you made up an excuse? And I think this is kind of a, uh, you know, a, a half excuse. He goes, what man, if Saul hears about that, he would kill me. Now, no doubt when Saul does hear about David and David's uh, purposes, there is murderous intent in Saul's heart. And he does go after David later on to try to kill him. But God tells him, he said, well, make your mission secret. He said, what I want you to do is take, uh, take an ox with you and offer a sacrifice and declare a feast there to worship to God, which would have not been unheard of for the prophet to come in and do that. And so here's Samuel, the priest, the prophet, coming in to offer a sacrifice, to honor God, to worship in this little town of Bethlehem. Old little town of Bethlehem. Same city, the same town that Ruth and Boaz met in, the same town that in just a few, just a few generations down the line, some shepherds will be in the field watching, and Jesus will be born in this little town. You see, because he's of the house and lineage of David. And so he sends him to Bethlehem, and he said, I want you to go, and this secret mission is kind of given the picture, declare the feast. His objection was that Saul would kill him, and then so he gives this understanding, make sure he says that Jesse's family is there, and he said, I'll tell you which one of his sons to anoint. So he shows up there in Bethlehem to anoint him. And what do we see immediately is that the town is fearful. Verse number four, and Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, do you come peaceably? Maybe they had heard about what he did to Agag. No doubt they had heard what he had done to Agag. And he said, here the prophet, who now bears a sword, is showing up in our city. Is everything okay? Now, it's not unusual for a messenger of God to show up with a message from God and people to be afraid. Do you remember in the same city when the angels showed up to the shepherds? What's the first thing he had to say to them? Don't be afraid. Because God's coming with a message. And by the way, God's message ought to be terrifying at times. God Almighty is speaking to us. There ought to be some fear and trembling and seriousness that's going into the message that God is delivering. So they show up in this town. He says, no, I've come peaceably. Consecrate yourself. Now, this is not a phrase we use often here in the New Testament age, but in verse number five, he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice, Lord, consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. The consecrate had to do with washing of your body and your clothes to set yourself apart for the purpose of worship. It's preparing yourself to worship. Now, I will say this, that when we come to the New Testament, we're not interested in going to a place to find worship only. Or worried about the outside that makes worship possible. But there ought to be some care put to what goes on on the inside of our hearts. Even our Lord would say in the prophets as we get to the end of the Old Testament. Rend your hearts and not your garments. 
Let your heart be anointed with sackcloth and ashes. Let there be grieving that is on the inside of us. So they wash, they prepare, everything is festive now. There's an excitement in the air. The prophet has come. He's come here to declare a feast. He's brought this cattle with him, and we're going to have a, it's going to be a great time. And then Jesse gets the invitation. Jesse gets, I don't know how he got the invitation. Maybe a runner comes to the door of Jesse's house, and he said, hey, Samuel's down in the town square. He's having a feast. He wants you and all your boys to come. You're all invited, so come down there, and this is not a request. It's an order. And they're coming down to the feast, and no doubt excited, uh, no doubt uh, anticipating what does this mean. David is not, and, and I think it's interesting to hear what he says in verse uh, number 6 through 13 when we get to this feast. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. <clears throat> I think it's interesting that he's looking for the Lord's anointed. He's not making the Lord's anointed. The pouring of the oil on David's head does not make David the anointed of the Lord. It just recognizes who God has already chosen. That pouring of the oil was a symbol of what God had already done in the heart of David and calling him to him. And so David was not waiting on Samuel's oil to be God's anointed, but Samuel's oil was only catching up to where God had been all along with David. We see he's looking in and he sees that we see the first thing about this is God reprimands Samuel pretty quickly here. He sees Eliab and he sees him in verse number 6 and he said, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature because I have rejected him for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. God sees the heart of David. David's heart was turned toward God long before this day. God had been dealing with David in the shepherd's field. He'd been dealing with David on the backside of the desert where often he deals with his servants. Then he had called him to him and had done a work of transformation in his heart already. Let me just say again this morning, the need for God-ordained leadership is apparent all around us. And it's no more needed than in the church house. And if ever it comes a time that you find yourself in your life as a member of a New Testament church, whether it be here or in any other location where you are tasked with the responsibility of putting your hands upon God's leadership and saying we affirm someone as a leader in spiritual roles, I would encourage you this morning to choose slowly, wisely, and according to God's will. Too often, we are too encouraged or focused on the external and not concerned with the heart. Let me remind you, had there been an election for David as king, David would not have won his house, much less the nation. But yet he was God's chosen one. He was the one God wanted for this hour. Psalm 78, 70, and 72, he says he chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfold, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. This was God's choice of him. Very clearly, it was not Eliab. Now, I, I digress for a moment here, but I... I see Samuel coming in and seeing Eliab, and if I can put it in modern terms, he kind of has a man crush all of a sudden. He sees this guy and he goes, oh my word, that guy, look at him. Look at those shoulders. 
I mean, that guy right there, yeah. You know, I mean, this is what comes to mind. You know, I'm just like, I started to try to sing the song for you, you know. But, and God says, that's not him. And he's like, hey, look right here, man. I want you to keep your eyes on me. Don't look at them. He's not the answer. And he goes through all the seven sons, and he, he, he's saying, look, it's not this guy. You know, we, and here's the thing that's so important for us to remember. We cannot know the heart of the person sitting next to us. God knows their hearts. We must seek the heart of God. And so we ask the question, where is David? And Samuel says, hey, I've gone through all your sons, and nobody here is the anointed one. Now, make something clear. I don't think that Jesse is clear on why he's anointing one of his sons. And I'm not sure that all the brothers get the full understanding of what the anointing is about. He just knows that one of them is going to be set apart for God somehow. And, and he's like, where are the rest of your, your sons? Don't you have any more? Because God said it was going to be one of your sons. And now we've gone through all your sons. Do you have any other sons laying around somewhere? And he says, well, I mean, it's David. But you'd probably be better off just to run through these guys again and check it out. You know, because, you know, maybe you just had bad reception when you were, you know, going over them, you know. And, you know, he's kind of like, you know, the broom hangs, the broom hangs, the broom hangs. And he's trying to get God's attention again. And, you know, maybe that's what we need to do. And he's like, no, 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 go get David. We're not going to eat until he gets here. That's a pretty big, you know, line in the sand here. Nobody's eating, all right? And I can imagine them waiting on David to get there, and a runner has to go to where David's at. He's out in the field. The message comes, your dad wants you, he wants you now. you got to hurry. David's on foot, running back into where they are, and we're, we don't have any idea how long it took. I will think that, I will say this, that when I've been out of country, things move a lot slower outside the United States than they do here, and nobody's upset about it. Maybe there's something we can learn there, but David makes his way in, and I kind of picture him coming in with the heat of the sun on his face, his face flushed and red, his body tanned by being outside, and the Bible says he is a good-looking guy. He, he's a handsome fellow. His eyes were uh, something that captivated you when you saw it. You know, and, and, you know, I used to read this account and people would talk about Eliab, you know, and I'm like, I guess God doesn't want to use good-looking people. That's what I used to think. And I'm like, but then David's kind of a contradiction. So all, all of you that are good-looking people or you think you are, God can still use you, okay? Um, um, David is a good-looking guy. But I picture him rushing in and He's there to be anointed. And where do we find him? We find him with the sheep. He's the shepherd. And this, this phrase, the shepherd, stays with David all of his life. Even in the text we read a minute ago that God called him from the sheepfold to lead his sheep. In the ending of his life, as he's pleading for the nation of Israel, and he's praying to God in intercessory prayer, he intercedes and says, God, don't put this upon these sheep. And when Nathan comes to him to point out his sin, what does Nathan use? He uses the analogy of a shepherd. Because this is so close to the heart of David. He saw himself as a sheep being led by Jehovah God. 
He says in Psalms 23, the Lord or Jehovah is my shepherd. In Psalms 100, he said, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. David's life verse, no doubt, if he were to tell you what his life verse is, I, I, would, I would pick this one for him. Psalms 23, 3, he leadeth me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And here David finally makes him way in. And, and I'm glad that the image of shepherd is not something that is left in the Old Testament, but is brought in the New Testament. We know that Christ is the good shepherd, that he's the great shepherd. Even the privilege this morning of being called pastor is shepherd. You see, cattle can be driven, sheep must be led. And this picture of shepherd, and what an opportunity to be an under-shepherd, under the good shepherd, and to serve his people in this tender way. And the picture is very tender. You cannot read these, these psalms that David writes without seeing the tenderness of David's heart. David comes, I think, bouncing into the room. What do you need? And then all of a sudden realizing, oh my goodness, there's a feast on. What's happened? And as soon as he walks in the room, the Spirit of God speaks to Samuel again. Verse number 12, and he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Here he is, now kneeling. We have no indication, indication of who knew what, was, what the anointing meant. It could not have been broadly known, for Saul would have found out. And, and is it not God's purpose anyway that he seldom unfolds his entire plan at one time? But he gives us one step at a time. David is going to be anointed on two more occasions in his lifetime. He's anointed here as the king of Israel. And then in a few years, he'll be anointed as king over Judah, which is the divided king after Saul's death. And then he'll be finally anointed as the king over Saul's few tribes that stayed with him. And we see the two anointings taking place. And so three times he's anointed. And what does he pray to God in one of his psalms? I pray that you would anoint me with fresh oil. And we see that picture of God declaring who he is and standing with him and calling him to serve him. And as the oil flowed down his head into it, onto his neck and shoulders, he must have wondered what had just happened. But look, if you would, in verse number 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And we'll spend some time next week talking about the Spirit of God and its interaction with Old Testament saints and in a New Testament setting as well. We'll talk about that a little bit next week, but here we see David being filled with the Spirit of God. Let, let me make something extremely clear in closing this morning. The call of God is not a catapult to greatness, but it's rather a call to suffer and to service. David is going to be many years yet before he sits upon a throne. And even on the throne, it will be a throne that is filled with war and battle. And heartache will follow. And yet God called him. 
You see, the call of Christ today for you and I is to lay down our lives, to die to our dreams and wishes and hopes. Don't ever get the idea that we're called to God and everything is going to be sunshine and roses, but there is going to be a valley that we go through. Everybody wants a resurrection. Nobody wants a Calvary. And when David is called to walk with God in this way, he is anointed to be the king. He is called not just to the throne, but he's called to the cave of Adullam. And he's called to running in the wilderness. And he's called to having his life and his name drugged through the mud. He's called to be a byword to the nation of Israel. All of those things are a part of his calling. He's called to die to the way we think God is going to bring to pass his plan. How many of you ever try to solve God's problems for him? I've done that many times. Now, God, I know you want to answer this prayer, and here's how you can solve it. Didn't Abraham do that? Abraham said, hey, God's going to make me a many nations, so why don't we take Hagar, and then I'll have a child with her, and then I'll solve God's problem for him. And let me say this, God doesn't need our Hagars. He doesn't need our, 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 our alternative plans. We can trust that God can bring about his plan in his time. David is anointed king, and yet in the very next chapter, where do we find him? Or this, the later in this chapter, we find him back at the sheep. He's right back with the sheep out in the field. God will move in his time, not ours. Don't abandon the few sheep because you want a throne. David knew he was an anointed of God, but he never confused the fact that he was God's anointed with saying that he was the anointed. He understood that there was a Christ that was coming after him. And the word Christ literally is the Greek interpretation of the anointed one. And he was looking for the anointed that would come. And his psalms are full of prophecies that are pointing toward the anointed who would come. And so here we stand with a God-ordained work in front of us. I'm amazed by this, how often we look at David and we think, man, God chose David to be the king. And man, I'm just chose to be an accountant. Or I'm just chose to work in an office. Or I'm just chose to work at a hospital. Or I'm just chose to drive a truck. And we, we, we kind of take what God has given us and we miss the point that God has given us an ordained work as well. This morning, if you are married, you are ordained by God to be their spouse and to love them as Christ has loved you. And nobody else can do a better job of that than you. You were called by God to do it. If you have children this morning, think about that. You didn't choose who your children were. And you're like, and if I could have, we made a different note to them. You didn't choose them. They were given to you by God. And nobody else in the world was given that responsibility. And just as David was anointed for this throne, you were anointed for that role. And can we testify to the fact that with rearing children, there is some death that comes? I promise you, when you're holding a two-month-old at three o'clock in the morning, you're dying to self. And there is a process of sanctification that God takes us through in every stage of our children's life to challenge us. Our marriages take us through a period of sanctification where we have to die to self. And our jobs take us through those periods. And our friendships take us. And the church takes us through it. And all of those things, when we are God appointed to a role, sometimes we're saying, well, God, I would be happy to be a king for you. 
They said, well, I didn't choose everybody to be a king. God has chosen some people out of human history to be glaring road signs of where he's going with everything. But every person here has an ordained purpose. You were created for a purpose. You see, the Old Testament, uh, God selected men and women who were chosen by God to be dramatic road signs on the road of redemption. Kings were anointed, priests were anointed, prophets were anointed and appointed to a work. But in the New Testament, every believer is set apart for a work and anointed with, yea, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And set apart for that work. Yea, each time... A God, you have uh, each have a God ordained work. Each of you today have a God ordained work to do. Don't look for God in the grand events, but in the mundane obedience. What we must see is that David saw God at work with the sheep long before he saw God at work with the nation. And he was content to see God with the sheep. He didn't have to have the nation to see God. And this is so important that we get our minds on this. We have been anointed by God for a work that is unique to you. Don't live in envy of another's role. Don't live in discontentment with your flock. But embrace the work that God has placed you in and the work that he's placed in your hands. Carry out his work as a child of the King of Kings and a joint heir with Christ. We are not waiting for God's will to come to us. We are living it out now. This is God's will. This is what we're doing today. See, God is looking for us to be faithful where we are and content with what we have and not see the caves as God failing to be God, but as a part of the process of where God is leading. And so this is where David begins. He's the anointed of God to be the king, and yet many years will pass before he ever sees a throne. The throne's not even in sight yet. And we're going to see what God does with the rejected king next week and talk about how God is putting together the rejected king and the anointed king. It's kind of almost like there is a kingdom within a kingdom. Like there is one kingdom, but then there's the true kingdom that is rising up in the other kingdom. Kind of almost like a picture of the church today, isn't it? That there's a kingdom marching that's been rejected, but we know ultimately our king will sit upon the throne. So we can rest that God's plan is being unfolded. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its sufficiency. Father, we ask you that you would work in the hearts of each person here today. Holy Spirit of God, do a work that only you can do. Or may we not take for granted the work that you've given us, but we pour ourselves into where you've placed us for your glory. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Let's stand to our feet.